0: The following recording is a presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Roanoke Park, California and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome you to visit our services anytime here in the Roanoke Park area. Now if you'll open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, this is our second week of the new year. And we do continue to pray that very soon we will be together fellowshipping and uh, worshiping our Lord in this place. And our inability to fellowship in person is part of what fuels the issue that I want to talk to you about today. Now, last week, we finished several weeks of study on Christian warfare And we are done with the academic part of that study, but we certainly aren't through with the practical, everyday living part of this subject. Now, the Apostle Paul said that we must stand against the wiles of the devil. His wiles are his schemes. Those are his many methods of attack that he uses to cut Christians down at the knees and to ruin our spiritual walk with the Lord. As you know, Paul was fond of using that term walk to describe the way that we live. And he says that we are to walk worthy of our calling in Christ Jesus. And it is this walk that the devil constantly attacks. And so while we are done with the subject of Christian warfare, the devil is never done with us. He is relentless and we must not ignore the fact that we always need to be on the lookout ...for the next trap that he lays in front of us. Well, in this text of Philippians chapter 2, we find another of Satan's common tactics. And in fact, this is one that he's used for thousands of years. And this is his attempt to get us to evaluate our success by what the world does. That even though we love Christ and we serve him... And they are against the Lord. Still, it seems they do better than us. Now, our study verses this week and next are Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 16. In Philippians chapter 2, beginning at verse number 12. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom ye shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. Now, we begin our message today with verses 12 and 13 of this second chapter. And by themselves, those two verses are are an excellent study and we would do well to explore them in greater detail. They're very good, but I don't intend to focus on those verses today. I will comment that... They are, for some, hard to understand, might even seem to be contradictory. Here the apostle tells us to work out our salvation, and unfortunately that is often misinterpreted to work for your salvation. And we know that's incorrect because there are so many places in scripture that tell us that our salvation is not by our works, but by faith in the work that Christ did for us. Now, when a person comes to Christ, there is no work for him to do. And this is because God planned his salvation from the foundation of the world. And God implements our salvation in time by opening our minds to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then by the work of his Holy Spirit, he goes beneath our consciousness and overcomes our natural contrary will to the things of God. And then God alone gifts us with repentance and faith. And that leaves nothing for us to do to contribute to that initial working of our salvation. But the Bible also teaches that salvation is an ongoing work. While we are justified and set apart from sin and the initial working of God, yet there is a sense in which salvation is ongoing throughout our lives, And it's continually bringing us into conformity with Christ. Now, there is nothing in salvation from start to finish that is not God's work. But at the same time, God brings us into his work as the efficient means of carrying out his plan to conform us to the image of Christ. Now, verse 13 of this text says that God is the one who enables the believer to work out his salvation The ongoing process is perseverance. That is our practical sanctification. And it requires our efforts. But God alone is the one who strengthens us and enables those efforts to be possible. you see, if God didn't supply the power, then this old nature that's left in us would overcome us. Uh, We wouldn't be able to persevere in righteousness and holiness. But God is working That we may be able to live in, in the ways that he wants us to go. Now, two theological words that you should familiarize yourself with are monergism and synergism. Regeneration, we say, is monergistic. That means that God works alone. He works without any input from us. But our practical sanctification is synergistic. And that means that we cooperate with God in the process. Now, verses 12 and 13 are part of Paul's doctrine of sanctification. It's an explanation of how God enables our sanctification while at the same time requiring our cooperation. Now, stated in another way, as Paul does in other scriptures, he tells us that we must yield ourselves to the working of the Holy Spirit. So practical sanctification is synergistic While regeneration is monergistic. Well, now Paul goes on with verses 14 to 16, and he demonstrates the practical side of sanctification. That is the practical side of his doctrine in verses 12 and 13. Now, this is important for us. And the practice of this doctrine hits home to us today because we find ourselves in the throes of discontent. Because of this pandemic, because of finances, because of lost fellowship. And there are just so many ways that the devil affects the mind so that we can't work out our salvation. Now, if you look at verse number 15 for just a moment, we find the thought for the title of the message. The apostle says that ye may be blameless and harmless. The sons of God without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom ye shine as lights in the world, now our theme is standing straight in a crooked world. Our theme is how to accomplish this demand of holiness that 's made in the apostles' plea that we are to be blameless and harmless without rebuke. This is our sanctification. How do we stand for the Lord when everyone And everything in this world and much that is out of this world from top to bottom, it opposes believers in Jesus Christ. Well, none of us are strangers to the fact that we are living in a perverse world. I remember preaching on this subject more than 12 years ago. And at that time, we had just finished the 2008 election and on the ballot in that year, there was an initiative to preserve the traditional definition of marriage. Now, we all know what happened with that, and it's been a steady downhill trek since then. Uh, during the summer this last year, we were hit with the Black Lives Matter movement. And one of the uh, stated goals of the founder of that movement was to promote transgenderism and to destroy the nuclear family. And so what we've seen over these years is the family torn apart. We've seen the family destroyed. We've seen marriage that's that's disintegrating. And then on top of this, the only institution in the world that can save us from this maddening wickedness is the church. And the government has seen fit to shut us down. Now, it has been a steady progression from one sin to the next. Now, it seems there is nothing out of bounds. And we wonder... What is the cause of this? Well, we certainly know the world has much to do with it. But unfortunately, we can't expect things to be much better when there are Christians who are supposed to be blameless and harmless amid a crooked and perverse nation who will vote unashamedly to kill babies in the womb. And even when they're ready to be delivered. And they argue that that if an abortion is botched ba- and the baby lives and they have a right to kill a baby outside of the womb. And so there are Christians that will accept that, although they say, well, we are personally opposed to abortion. We're opposed to murder. But that's not as important as the economy. That's not as important uh, as as the the environment that that's just not important. You see, if the pocket feels good, then there is no attack of conscience. And then there are some who say that Christians ought not to be one issue voters. But I'm telling you, if murder is on the ballot and you vote for it, then just wait until you're a little bit older. And there's a ballot of an initiative that comes up that says that you are a burden on society and you ought to be killed. And then I also remember 12 years ago when preaching on this text that I said, Things are not as bad as they could be. Because there's still some Christian influence left, and that's the filter through which many of these proposals are run through. And that's what saves us from the worst. Now, these years later, we wonder, is that true? Is that still true? Well, I don't think so. The church is now fighting for survival in America And we are the ones that are about to be aborted to be a Christian is to be a pariah in Paul's time living in the Roman Empire. He said, Christians, we we are the offscouring of the world. He said, "We're, we're the dog dude that people step in and try to fling off of their shoes. And now we find ourselves in America in that same place that we are part of a world that is moving at light speed towards the revelation of the Antichrist. Now, in the last days, the depravity of the human heart will be exposed as never before. And we wonder, we must wonder, is this what we're seeing? I mean, when did you imagine that it would be impossible for you to know the gender of your baby, even after that baby is born? When does Ellen Page become Elliot Page and the world rejoices because sexual deviance is the measure of courage? I mean, how is it that these people are the best that we have to author, uh, offer instead of being the shame of society like it was centuries before? When has darkness been called light and light has been called darkness? When has good been celebrated and not celebrated and, and evil celebrated over good like it is now? So this is truly, and we know this, it is a wicked and perverse nation. And the world is dictating to Christians now what happiness means and how we can achieve it. And the sad story is that Christians are being sucked into this whirlpool of filth. And there are churches that promote sin rather than hold up a standard of righteousness and preach against it. My wife and I were. Talking the other day about some people that we know who are living together without marriage. They attend a large church on the way to Sebastopol and they are accepted there. While there is a modicum of, of watered down gospel preaching, there is no real call for repentance from sin and holy living. And Christians accept that Christians don't stand for anything and they're not pricked in the heart to be righteous and holy, to be harmless and without blame among a wicked and perverse nation. No, Christians are being sucked into the world's lifestyles. Now, our desire then is to have what they have. We think that what they have will bring us personal happiness. When the truth is that joy for a Christian is never achieved by rejecting The sanctification that God requires of his people. But I do want to say this. In the midst of all of that trouble, in the darkness today, there are still some. There are still some who look to God's word to find their contentment. I'm happy to say that I believe we have many in our church that do look to the word of God, that look to Jesus Christ and his ways to find their contentment. And so they reject sin as they should. They are convicted as they should be when they know that their lives depart from God's design for them. Now, as your pastor, I was blessed beyond what I could hope to be. When I received a letter recently from one of our young people who was going through a trial and this young person expressed faith in God to give answers. And I received this letter and this person wanted to confirm through me what was already decided. This young person told me about reading the word, about praying and asking for guidance and then deciding to do what God said and to reject the convenient choice Of what most people would do. And it was a decision that said, I belong to the Lord and his will must be done in my life. And I'm telling you that that's uh, more of a rarity these days than not. Now, thank God for parents that still want to keep their children in church that insist that if their if their children are under their roof, they will be in church and the family will obey the Lord. You know, the Proverbs aren't called wisdom literature for nothing. The scripture says to train your children in the way that they should go. And when they were old, they will not depart from it. Now, what the Proverbs doesn't tell you, it doesn't say that your children will be perfect. And it doesn't say that they won't struggle with doing the right thing and often do the wrong thing. No, the Proverbs say that if you teach them what is right, the right way to go that when they go the wrong way, they, they will be convicted. They will turn back to what they are taught. And, folks, we need to keep laying that foundation because we live in a wicked and perverse nation. Now, I realize in our congregation, most of you are older. The kids are gone. But I'll tell you what I've experienced myself that, that shows me that, that God knows what he's talking about. I still get phone calls That say, Dad, what should I do? What path should I take? And when they've done something wrong, when my kids have done something wrong, they aren't purposely and persistently digging deeper holes for themselves. But they want to get up. They want to see the light of God's blessings. And that is the reward that God promises. And I'll tell you something else. If your children are walking the wrong path, don't defend them. Don't hold them up. Rebuke them. Tell them the truth. You'll never help them by being supportive of their sins. Now, there is a lot that I could say about that. And there are situations that distress me and disappoint me. But more importantly, they anger and disgust God. So let's be separate from this wicked and perverse nation. Let's not be contributors to it. Now, that's a lot of introduction. I haven't yet got into the message. I want to tell you what the Bible says that we must guard against. Happiness is not achieved in materialism. It's not achieved in worldly attitudes. But we must separate ourselves from the world's ways and learn to be content in our salvation. Even when and especially when trials come, we must learn to be content in Christ. Now, the world will suck you down in every area of your life. It will drag you down in everything from your material household goods to your physical well-being to your spiritual morality. So let's explore what Paul says about this. Philippians is a letter. It's a letter about how to live a life of joy and peace and contentment. And it tells us how to stand up straight for God in a bent down Crooked world. Well, we need to, to go to verse number 14 in verses 12 and 13. The apostle says, work out your salvation. And now we know that that work is fueled by the power of God. And in verse 14, the apostle gives two methods of working out our salvation. Now, today we discuss verse number 14. Next week, we come back and look at verses 15 and 16 in the 14th verse. Do all things without murmurings and disputings. Now, from this verse, we will talk about the insolence of believers. The insolence of believers. What is insolence? Well, it is our tendency to be impertinent, to be disrespectful, to be irreverent. And perhaps mostly in this place, it means to be discontented, to be cheeky towards What God provides and it is to be so forward as to think that we know better than God. Now, let me say straight up before we start that discontent is sin. Discontent is to stand in the face of God and say, I am not satisfied with where you put me. I don't like what you've done to me. I I don't deserve the treatment you give me. In other words, I deserve better than this. Discontent is sin, and it's the opposite of the characteristic humility that's found in Christ as described in the first part of this chapter. Now, I think most of you are probably familiar with the first part of Philippians chapter two, where it tells us of Christ's condescension uh, before his exaltation, his going down and going down before he is exalted and his name is above every other name. Now, the example of Christ is his willingness to accept that God should take him down and that God could take him down to the lowest point possible to fulfill his purpose. And it is to go down and yet still to understand that God in these things is working things for our good. This is what Christ did. He went down in humility. He went down into shame, knowing that his father would exalt him in due time. Christ did it without complaint, and he was willing to do it. He was glad to do it because it was his father's will. And so Christ knew that no matter how bad it got to be in the flesh and to be a lowly servant and then to go down to the cross and knowing that he never deserved to be there still, as low as he went, he knew God was in control. Now, let's look at two words that typify The insolence of believers, which is insolence directed at God. The first of these words is murmurings. Murmurings are emotions of discontent. Now, some translations use the word grumbling in this place, which is the same in in meaning. Grumbling is a muted Under the breath, guttural sound that's spoken when you are upset about something. In fact, the original word in Greek is onomatopique. That means that pronouncing the word makes the same sound as the action. Grumbling results when you are dissatisfied or disappointed because something happened to you that you think is undeserved. Well, this this word is used several times in the scriptures but none that so clearly demonstrates uh, the issue as Paul's example in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Now, if you take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians 10, I'd like to to read this. I want you to see it. And in this chapter, uh, Paul warns the Corinthians to watch their conduct lest they fall. And and he was giving examples of uh, of things that happened in the Old Testament. And he said these were written to. Teach us not to fall into the same holes that the children of Israel fell into. Now, I want you to notice what it says in this chapter. We start reading in verse number one, first Corinthians 10 verse number one. Moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea and did all eat "...the same spiritual meat, and did all drink the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with many of them God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things were our examples, to the intent that we should not lust after evil things, as they also lusted. Neither be ye idolaters, as were some of them." As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Neither let us commit fornication as some of them committed and fell in one day, three and twenty thousand. These This reads like a catalog of sins that we commit this very day. Neither let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. Neither murmur ye as some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. Now all these things happened unto them for in samples, and they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. Wherefore let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. Now let's look closely at verse number 10. Neither murmur ye as some of them also murmured and were destroyed Of the destroyer. Now, this warning is taken from the hard heartedness of Israel when they left Egypt on their way to the promised land, and we we don't have time to read all the scriptures concerning this. Uh, uh, You can do this at another time. Most of it's found in Exodus and Numbers, if you care to explore that further. But let me comment on two incidents of their discontent. Now, it started. Everything started with Israel in Egypt. They grumbled because they were in Egypt. Now the scripture says in Exodus two, verse 23, and it came to pass in the process of time that the king of Egypt died and the children of Israel sighed by reason of the bondage and they cried and their cry came up unto God by reason of their bondage. Now, we read this, that seems fine, because we do understand why they were unhappy and why they cried out to God. They were oppressed. And certainly it was within the will of God that Israel would leave Egypt, that they would go to the place of inheritance that was promised to their father Abraham many years before. In fact, if God had not allowed a new Pharaoh to come to power one who wasn't as favorable to the Jews as the former Pharaoh was to Joseph, then they would have been content to stay in Egypt forever. Now, if you remember the story, how Joseph placed Israel, his brothers, into the best part of the land of Egypt, he put them in the land of Goshen. That was the prime part of the Nile Delta. And so to move them out. To make them discontent, God brought oppression, and that's his method of of getting them to move towards Canaan. Now, Now, let me stop here for just a moment, because this is something that people have a hard time understanding, that God designed every action that Pharaoh took towards his people. Now, there was much evil in Pharaoh's heart, and God used that for his purposes. God is never the author of evil, and he wasn't pleased with Pharaoh's acts of oppression. But none of that was done independently of God's design. Paul recited in Romans what God said in Exodus, and many who deny God's sovereignty, as predestination, don't want to hear this. But in Romans 9, verse 17, it says, for the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, even for this same purpose, Have I raised thee up that I might show my power in thee and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. So don't think that God doesn't do just as he says he does. He works all things. He knows all his works from the beginning of the world. That's what it says in Acts 15. So in his divine providence. God can see the whole picture from the beginning to the end. He knows the beginning to the end because he planned and controls the beginning to the end and all points in between. Now, since there is evil in the world, God is not helpless to do anything with it. He's not helpless to do anything against it. And he can turn that he can turn evil into things that will accomplish his purposes And this is the way that God deals with us. We can only see the present ups and downs of life. We can't see the end. We can't see how it all works for our good, especially the bad things that happen in our lives. The good things, maybe we see a little bit of that. But we don't see into the future. We don't know far enough ahead to find out. What the good is that will come out of all these problems that we have. We see ours is simply to trust God that he's doing exactly what he said he would do. He would work things for our good. And so using oppression to get Israel out of Egypt was the way that they received something far better, which was the inheritance of Canaan. And that's what the sovereignty of God is all about. He is sovereign and we can't be Now, imagine for a moment that we could dictate to God when in our foolishness, we can't even run our everyday affairs with any semblance of good sense. But why do we have these warnings in the scripture? It is simply because we can't do this by ourselves. Now, we go back to Israel. They are in Egypt and God allows evil circumstances to arise to produce the effect that he desires. So finally, he does move his people out of Egypt and they will become his chosen nation governed by his divine laws. And so in the wilderness, he gave them his laws and he established the nation. But just to show you how short sighted they were, they were in the wilderness and headed towards the promised land. And with only within only a few days of that miraculous crossing of the Red Sea, they began to. Grumble. They murmured because there was no water. Well, God then gave them water from the rock. And then they started to grumble because there was no food. And so God gave them manna and quail. And in their grumbling, they said, oh, it was so much better back in Egypt. We remember the leeks and the garlic. We remember the fish and the cucumbers. No matter what God did for them, they grumbled. And the idea was we are discontent. Why is God doing this? Did he bring us into the wilderness to kill us with hunger and thirst? And do you remember they finally came to the border of Canaan? They came to Kadesh and the spies were sent out to check out Canaan. And it was a tremendous place. But there were 10 spies that came back with an evil report and the people fell apart. They said, we can't possess the land. And then they wanted to stone Joshua and Caleb, because they gave a good report. Now, that tells you something, doesn't it? The almighty God who had defeated all of Egypt's God's promise to do it and God's providence guided them every step of the way. But what did they say? We can read it in Numbers chapter 14, verses two and three. All the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron And the whole congregation said unto them, would God that we had died in the land of Egypt or would God that we had died in this wilderness? And wherefore, hath the Lord brought us unto this land to fall by the sword that our wives and our children should be a prey? Were it not better for us to return to Egypt? And so it was the grumbling of discontent all the time. When they ate manna and quail, it soon became too much manna and quail. Now, let's go back to verse 10 again in first Corinthians 10. Neither murmur ye as some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. Now, this grumbling culminated in an incident in number 16. Israel wasn't happy with the leadership of Moses and Aaron, and some of them wanted to become the leaders. And the end of that story is that God opened up the ground and swallowed up these men who wanted to take leadership. Now, you can let that be a lesson about trying to take authority and leadership away from God's appointed ministers. We are to follow the ones that God put before us. But still, they were obstinate. And in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 10, Paul referred to God sending a plague in which 14,700 Israelites died. When you grumble, you're saying that God's sovereign will for my life is not right. God is mistreating me. God does not treat me fairly. And Paul said, when you do this, you are in danger of being disqualified from God's service. So this is the emotional response of discontent. It's sin against God. Now, let me warn you before I leave this point. Don't grumble when you are where God puts you. And don't grumble when you're not where God put you. Don't grumble when you're out of place because of your obstinacy. Don't complain when hard times are your fault. Peter said, for it is better if the will of God be so that you suffer for well doing than for evil doing. Now, if you're doing what God says, what he requires and you suffer, then praise God. Because the scripture says it is given in the behalf of Christ To suffer for his sake. But if you suffer because of your hard heartedness and your hard headedness, you still shouldn't grumble and you should still praise God because God treats you as his child. There's the chastisement of disobedience. And that is a blessing because God does it to bring you back to the only place where you can be genuinely happy. And that's in the center of his will. And then I can't help but mention this also that Satan Always perverts the gospel. Now, one of the ways that he does this, and this has become popular across the entire world now. One of the ways that Satan perverts the gospel is the prosperity gospel. And the prosperity gospel is the promotion of discontent. Now, I know that appears it appears to be the opposite. It pretends that, uh, to tell you how you can be content. But it feeds on discontent because it teaches that where you are is not where you should be. And if you're in any kind of trouble, if it's that you're not rich, if it's if you're not what you want, then you need to be discontent. And so it feeds on that discontent without discontent and without rejecting suffering for Christ. The prosperity prosperity gospel doesn't travel Why does it sound so strange? Well, because it is nothing but psychobabble. It's unbiblical. It's unchristian. It's the opposite of what's taught in God's word, especially what is taught right here in this chapter in Philippians. The Bible says, don't murmur, don't complain. God is sovereign. And if you are in his will, you are right where he wants you to be, even if it means trouble. Now, if you're godly and you're in trouble with the world. That's where God wants you. So in the middle of a crooked and perverse nation, you must stand straight and not complain. To do otherwise is to say to this lost world that God is not good. God doesn't treat his people well. God is not sovereign. God doesn't have your best welfare at heart. Again, discontent is sin. And this year has produced or this past year has produced many discontented Christians. You see, we shouldn't look at this pandemic in the same way that the world does. We should look at it as God accomplishing some purpose that we may not yet be aware of. Now, secondly, Paul uses another word describing Christian insolence. This is the word disputings. Do all things without murmurings and disputings. What are disputings? Well, disputings are intellectual arguments. What does he mean? He means that we must do what God says without discussion. We are to accept it without debate. Now, think for a moment. Who who do you dispute with when you're discontent? Well, that dispute is with God. Disputing is when you reason it out and the conclusion is you know more what you need than God knows what you need. So you formulate an argument with God and even your prayers can become prayers of argument. Now we go back to Israel again. The Old Testament was written for our learning. It is an example for us. How did Israel proceed? Well, they saw God's miraculous works and they were unconvinced that their way was not better. They devised an argument against God. It is better for us to return to Egypt. Now, you can write this reference down and read it later. Psalm 106. And this is a psalm that rehearses Israel's journey and how they argued against God. They came to the Red Sea and... They saw no way to go across, and so the argument returned to Egypt. They have no water. The argument returned to Egypt. They have no food. Then the argument is return to Egypt. They come to Kadesh, and the spies return with fear, and so the argument is return to Egypt. And when they were standing at the foot of Mount Sinai, Moses went up on the mountain to talk with God to receive the law. God commanded them to wait. But then you find that they argued they waited too long. Moses was gone too long. And so they reasoned in their little puny intellectual minds that it was better to make a golden calf and to worship a dead God like the ones that had just been overthrown and how God had drowned Pharaoh and his men to demonstrate it. You see where that disputing with God takes you? But that's not all that they did. God commanded them to have nothing to do with the heathen peoples that were on their way to Canaan and said, don't don't mess with them. But what did they say? No, no, it's better that we should marry them. And so they took wives of these heathens and then they joined in their idolatry. And the result, God sent a plague to straighten them out. What happened? Well, they had no confidence that where God leads, it's always the right way to go. The psalmist said in Psalm 106, they forgot his works and waited not for his counsel. Now, what do the scriptures say we should do? Well, Proverbs gives us good advice. We all know this. Proverbs 3, 5 through 8. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not to thine own understanding. In all thy ways, acknowledge him and he shall direct. Thy paths be not wise in thine own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. It shall be health to thy navel and marrow to thy bones. What is the message? Don't argue with God. Your intellect is no match for him. Nothing in your puny, finite brain will formulate a better solution than God provides. You can't win this argument. You'll be forever discontented if you don't accept that God is always and only right. Abraham is the one who received the promise originally, but Abraham was no longer there. He wasn't there to advise them, but I do know what he would have said. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? So how then do you obey Paul's instructions. Now, you've heard me preach what you should do. You see here in the text that Paul declares it. But you are the one who lives it. What is the solution for the things that you face in everyday life? How do you face them without murmuring and without argument? Well, let me give you three quick suggestions of how to deal with this. These are the solution to insolence. What must you do? Well, first... Remember God's character. Think about God, that God is incapable of doing anything unkind or unfair, and he's never indifferent with his children. His nature is perfect righteousness. It is unequaled benevolence and his righteousness always leads to perfect justice. So it is impossible. It is impossible for God to treat you unfairly. You're justified by your faith in Christ. You are given righteousness. And so God treats you as his child. And so know this, that God never acts out of character. It's impossible for him to be anything other than what he declares himself to be. God can't lie to you. Next, remember this. Remember God's concern. Consider his concern. Now, since you are a child of God and he is your father, he loves you. He is concerned about your welfare. He has he made you an object of His love and sent His only Son to die for you. So, do you think that He would forsake what He paid such a great price for? Romans says in Romans eight thirty two, He that spared not His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? So, it is illogical. Considering what Christ, what God did for us and giving his own son, it is illogical and impossible for God to treat your welfare with indifference. He has a vested, expensive interest in you. And so he is concerned about every detail of your life. So concerned that we read in scripture, he knows every hair that's on your head and numbers them. Never, ever believe the devil's lie that God doesn't care for you. And then number three, and I think this is the best, and and this seals the whole equation. Number three is that we remember God's cause. This is perhaps the most important because it has eternal consequences. It is God's purpose to bring us into his realm, and the cause is his glory. Your great purpose is to glorify God, and you can't do it. If God doesn't lead you perfectly in the way, so what will God do? Well, he will do everything necessary to conform you to the image of Christ. His cause is your entire sanctification so that you become like his son. Now, if there's trouble in your life, then he uses it to file off the rough edges. He uses trials, sometimes trials by fire to strengthen you, to burn up the dross in your life. Now, remember, this is the purpose of the Christian armor, because you're going through all these things, because there is all this difficulty and the devil's after you. The Christian armor helps you to survive Satan. So you will be glorified in heaven. That is God gifting you with what you need. So what does it all mean for you? Well, it means this. God's cause is not your good time. God's cause is not your fun His chief concern is not your health and it's not your wealth and certainly not your earthly prosperity. No, his chief concern is to bring you to the perfection of Christ. And so everything that he does is to take you in that direction so that he molds you into the perfect man, woman, boy or girl. And how long will he do this? uh, Ephesians rather tells us and. Chapter four, how long will he do this till we all come in the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the son of God unto a perfect man unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ? That's God's cause. This is his goal. And so whatever it takes to meet that goal, God will do. So the cure to our insolence, our discontent, our murmurings, our disputing is to remember God's character Remember his concern and remember his cause. His will is the perfect will. So I'm telling you that the apostle is teaching us to be satisfied with God. As we read in the scripture reading a moment ago, be content with what God gives you. Be content with where you are, no matter where you must go, no matter how high the walls of water are on each side. He will safely lead you through until you reach the other side. You'll walk through on dry ground until you reach those shores where one day you will see God. Christians, be content in God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you confessing our sins and realizing, Lord, that we have fallen so far short of what you would have us to be. And we are many, many times a discontented, arguing type of people. Lord, help us that we wouldn't murmur, that we wouldn't complain. But we realize that when we're doing whatever we can to to live in your word and we want to practice your word, that when those hard times come, that you're using all of that to shape us up, to mold us into that perfect image, everything that we see as bad that happens to us is really your hand working to make us what we should be help us to understand this lord we pray for our church it is so easy for us in these in these times when we can't be in church when we we miss the fellowship we we become weaker by this and Lord we pray that you'd help us to stay strong help us to stay in your word and Think every day about how we can live a better life for you and satisfy that 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 longing in our souls to be what you would have us to be. Lord, we pray that you be with us, strengthen us in all that we do Lord, be with our church, be with our people this week. And we hope to uh, again, we do hope and pray that we'll be back together soon. We keep praying this and we'll keep doing it. We will be persistent. Because that's the way that you tell us to pray. Thank you, Lord, for all these things. We pray that the gospel of Christ will impress some lost sinner today to realize they need you as Lord and Savior. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. And now if I might give you another word of benediction from Deuteronomy chapter 31. And this is taken from Israel just before they were to go into the promised land. And it teaches us that in every trial that we face, God is with us and God goes before us to safely lead us through. And so this is what Moses said just before they were to go into the promised land in Deuteronomy 31, verse number six. He says, be strong and of a good courage. Fear not, nor be afraid of them. For the Lord thy God, he it is that doth go with thee. He will not fail thee nor forsake thee. The eternal God is thy refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms and he shall thrust out the enemy from before thee and shall say, destroy them. Israel then shall dwell safety in safety alone. The fountain of Jacob shall be upon a land of corn and wine. Also its heaven shall drop down dew. Happy art thou, O Israel, who is like unto thee, O people saved by the Lord, the shield of thy help? And who is the sword of thy excellency? And thine enemies shall be found liars unto thee, and thou shalt tread upon their high places. That's God's promise that he will see you through. Go with God, be safe this week, and we'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us online at www.bebaptist.org.